The Verso Podcast, the home of radical thinking. That so many queer and trans people end up unhoused shows like what kind of trajectory that the state has in store for you. Like if you got past the age of 35, it was remarkable. Transness doesn't have to be thought through a medical gaze at all. It doesn't have to be thought as a pathology. It can just be thought as one of the variations of human experience. You know, one where it's really helpful if you've got access to certain kinds of care, but that's true for every human. Like most of us do better if we have access to the tools to kind of regulate our bodies and our lives. If a trans person wants to access gender-affirming care through official channels, at least, it usually starts with a story. Going into a doctor's office or going to a therapist or a parent and saying, this is me, this is who and what I am. It's tricky to do when the scripts we all have to understand our lives and who we are are so closely tied to the expectations of a straight, cisgender world. Get born into one, uncomplicated gender, fall neatly in love, marry, reproduce, acquire 2.4 golden retrievers, etc, etc. It's trickier still when trans people are policed, punished, excluded and even killed simply for living as themselves. When the basic resources needed for safety and survival are gatekept by cis straight society. And when our collective imaginations for what happiness might look like are still hemmed in by the white picket fence. Two recent biographies by writers Toshio Merinek and Mackenzie Walk revolt against the expectations of trans narratives. They offer us a new politics forged at hospital bedsides, in parties, in prison cells, in bedrooms and in street riots. They ask what it means to make your own life, to forge your own future, to find your own family, to drum up your own happiness, to write your own story. I asked Mackenzie and Toshio about sex, sisterhood and survival. Toshio Marinek is a writer whose work has appeared in The Advocate, Al Jazeera, The Nation, Them, Truth Out, Vice News and more besides. They host the podcast Sad Francisco and their book Miss Major Speaks, Conversations with a Black Trans Revolutionary was published in May by Verso Books. Mackenzie Walk is a professor of culture and media at Eugene Lang College, The New School. She's the author of multiple titles, including A Hacker Manifesto, Capital is Dead, Reverse Cowgirl, and Raving. Her latest book, Love, Money, Sex, and Death, was published in September, also by Verso Books. We talked about mothering without motherhood, policing, housing crises, and the politics of desire. So to kick off... Mackenzie, your latest work is Love, Money, Sex and Death. And it's, of course, autobiography, autofiction, memoir, something in the range of those sorts of forms. And I'm really curious as to how you see the connections between sort of trans existence and autobiography, that sort of impulse to kind of write yourself, create yourself in this world as something kind of coherent or legible. For a long time, there's been a very standard version of what trans autobiography is supposed to look like. And they tended to be, first of all, written by white people, which would include me, but, you know, like that was the, that was the norm. And it would be an individual story where medical transition is the thing that then realises, you know, one's true gender. And it came a little bit from the stories you had to tell to get care in the first place. And it sort of extruded out of that medicalization into forms of popular memoir that were really written for cis people as sort of like a bit of a, you know, like the, the freak show part of memoir. Look, let's look at these strange people and what happened to them. So, and, you know, like trans people all read these books too. Like I read them all, but they weren't very useful or helpful to me. Like I didn't really sort of see myself in those stories. So I wanted to think about, well, how else can trans writing be? And how can different kinds of trans stories find different kinds of forms? And you know, maybe we need to pluralize the forms of writing to include you know, the range of, of ways that trans people find ourselves and find each other and to put this writing in community as well. So for you, Toshio, I, you've collaborated with Miss Major, who's often referred to as a living legend, right? And I'm curious as to what that process was like, sort of collaborating on a 
telling sort of someone else's story or staging someone else's words like that. That's a kind of intimate process, it strikes me. Yeah, I had worked for Miss Major for about 10 years, and I'd been recording a lot of conversations with her permission that we had been having, as well as conversations that she was having with some of her friends who were activists over the years. And this book came out of the transcriptions of many of those conversations. So tell me more about, I guess, what you learned about the changes in how we understand, it's a very kind of broad and baggy we there, but how we understand trans existence and how that's changed over the lifetime of someone like Miss Major. I mean, I guess the interesting thing to me is how in many ways things have not changed Mm. and hence... Major is still interested in doing things like writing a book because she feels like there is still a need for um, not only trans voices, but kind of trans voices on the left and people who are interested in uh, making some kind of change that isn't just kind of the... uh, I, I suppose you could call it like the the cultural change that we've seen more recently. Also, like yeah, political change. Mm-hmm. So let's roll back to that idea of the sort of trans narrative as the sort of medical narrative or something that's realised through kind of medical gaze. Mackenzie, what was it like, kind of broaching different ways of thinking about trans existence? What it is to kind of realise yourself as a trans person, while sort of resisting that kind of like prurient cis gaze, which focuses on things like, you know, scalpels and genitalia and that kind of thing. Yeah, it was only ever a minority of, you know, sort of Western trans people who got access to medical transition through, you know, sort of like legit clinics and things anyway, you know. And and that was sort of like the dominant version of the story that would show up, you know, in, in the sort of spectacular versions of you know, trans life that cis people would know, going back to sort of Christine Jorgensen as you know, not the first trans person, but the first sort of global celebrity trans woman, you know, in the 1950s. So, you know, like maybe you could sort of do two things here. Like one is to kind of say, you know, that wasn't most trans people's experience in the first place anyway. A lot of people were sort of excluded from from care completely. And secondly, maybe that's not the most important part of it that, you know, transness doesn't have to be thought through a medical gaze at all. It doesn't have to be thought as a pathology. It can just be thought as one of the variations of human experience. Um, You know, one where it's really helpful if you've got access to uh, certain kinds of care, but that's true for every human. Like, most of us do better if we have access to the tools to kind of regulate our bodies and our lives. So can we sort of shift the conversation more towards... And there's, there's different languages, but away from a medicalized language towards the language of politics, but also the language of aesthetics, the language of culture, uh, spiritual language maybe. Like there's other ways of thinking about what transness is. So tell me more about that. I was really struck in your work by how it sort of embraces a sort of more anarchic register or attitude, if you like, to not just sort of being trans, but sort of being a creature. I won't even call it being a human because there is this sort of like curiosity towards the non-human and like the vast range of possibilities that we have being an embodied creature roaming around planet earth for you know a few dozen years yeah it's it's tricky to frame this because transness is often treated as this really exceptional thing Mm. and it's like well just because it's rare and it is it's rare it doesn't mean it's sort of always magical like sometimes an important thing for trans people is just the right to be ordinary you know, if I'm, you know, can I, can I just walk down the street and be ordinary? And for a lot of trans people, that's not really available. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, holding on to uh, are there ways that transness starts to illuminate uh, parts of how power works or parts of what it means to be embodied or parts of the weirdness of the narratives we tell about ourselves? You know, are there are ways that um, transness does give you access to ways of thinking about the world and how it's structured. 
And so for you, Toshi, I know that your work is very interested in uh, policing, in housing, in these kind of very material matters and uh, taken with the way in which uh, transness and queerness, perhaps more generally, gives us a framework to renew our vision of these sort of uh, cultural and social and political institutions that is supposed to sort of securitize and make safe a certain vision of us, which is usually like straight, white and bordered and that kind of thing. How has your uh, journalism in these areas touched on or like is influenced by these sorts of attentions to what it's like for the queer life to navigate these systems? Yeah, I mean, I think Mackenzie sort of touched on this, speaking about how remarkable it can be for trans and queer people to feel like just kind of another another person on the street sometimes. And so I think a lot of the lacks that are facing people who are trans and queer, including a lot of the people in Miss Major's community that she talks about in the book, you know, for a lot of people, it's, it is just basic things like paying the rent or putting food on the table that are the chief obstacles to leading a, a happy life. Right. And it really um, challenges perhaps our ideas of what care would look like or what, you know, specific form of trans care would look like as carved out from care for people just sort of as people right and, and what kind of solidarity or what autonomy might look like in terms of okay maybe queer carers has an attention first to people as people who need to eat and have a roof over their heads and that kind of thing yeah absolutely I mean I think that's why things like the struggle to decriminalize sex work and to live in a world with no landlords are central to a lot of people in Miss Major's community's uh, way of thinking. Let's talk a little bit more about community because continuity between your works is this idea of mothering and sort of questioning what mothering can be because symbolically it's sometimes as a mainstay of you know, a far-right ideological white femininity. But there are also a lot of possibilities contained in the framework of you know, interpersonal care. I know yourself, Mackenzie, write, write a lot about mothering. You write to your own mother, in fact, in this book. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm always in sort of two minds about that language. And there's a, a way that, particularly among trans women, you know, sort of mother-daughter language is very common. Like, I had a trans mom. But it's also like, how then do we also think a little critically about family, given that a lot of people that I know were excluded from their birth families and, you know, like kicked out or have these very difficult relationships. So are there other languages for thinking this is, you know, I, I don't have a good answer to that. But yeah, you know, like for a lot of trans people, it's you really just have each other and you know, everybody's broke, so it's the same $20 going around. Everybody's GoFundMe all the time. Like, I'm ex I'm exceptional that I have a, you know, like, paid full-time job, you know. Like, I'm, I know girls who make good money, but it's often through doing things like sex work, which is, yes, let's decriminalise that, but also some people would rather not do it but don't have choices about that, don't have other lines of employment. So there's insecurity around work, insecurity around housing, you know, people's landlords feel like they can take advantage of them. That's if they can even get the application form for the apartment in the first place because it's like, oh, no, you know, no, you can't apply for it, you know, I've heard that story so many times. So, yeah, it's it's sort of people push together because we only have each other and that's that can get complicated. Like it can be family is complicated, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you don't always have the best relationships even with your family of choice, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's hard, but it is a kind of communal practice, at least that's sort of my experience here in, you know, Brooklyn, New York, but where, like, a lot of trans people I interact with are younger than me, like, there aren't that many older trans people, and they're really to be valued. They've been through the fucking wars, usually, you know? 
And often they're kind of done with, they've, they've done with the helping because they've done it so long, you know. So there are like so many moving parts <laughs> to the whole idea of community or family. But, you know, it's, it's a population that struggles a lot and starting with really, really basic things. As Toshi was mentioned of, of housing, criminalisation, uh, work, just access to work. And then you sort of add to that that, you know, like the world is telling us over and over again that we're just not real people or something, or that we're monsters or something, you know. So you can add to that the sort of, you know, psychological burden that we kind of have to bear for each other and, and be there for each other to, to see through, you know. Tell me a little bit more about the complexities of that kin building, because I'm really taken with uh, the form of the memoir as something that allows us to kind of lean into that messiness. You know, it's, it's not a, a polemic about utopia. It's a sort of very grounded about, you know, human relationships, which are always going to be complicated, right? You said family is complicated. God knows that's one of the most universal truths we have there. The universal is always challenging, but I feel like we're on safe territory there. Yeah, and one of the chapters in Love and Money, Sex and Death is is sort of a conversation between two trans women and that's doing some other work. But I also wanted to catch that sort of like bitchy spirit, <laughs> you know, of kind of like of people who are sort of like frenemies a little bit, you know, of, of like, yeah, we're in this together and, and we have things in common. But it's like, girl, who did I see you with last Saturday? Like, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> did you fuck my ex? You know, all that sort of stuff. Because like our worlds can be very, very small, you know. So and, and like it's worth sort of teasing out also a bit of the comedy of that you know like I don't want don't want it to be this unrelieved picture of trans suffering like it's important to acknowledge that right but that's not all of it you know there's there's also kind of comedy and glamour and and a whole range of other things that you know that are our people and Toshi, I'd love for you to uh, come in on this idea of mothering and, and where that stands in the sort of broader drive towards kin building and feels like we're kind of like feeling our way forwards in the dark because there are really very few cultural scripts if any for what that might look like and what happiness might look like yeah i mean like Mackenzie said it's so rare for people to live past a certain age and i'll say that age is 35 because it's the sort of number that uh, people used to use at the organization that Miss Major worked for, which was a an organization supporting women in prison, uh, trans women in prison in California, the Transgender, Gender Variant, and Intersex Justice Project here in San Francisco. And so 35 was the age that people would sort of use as shorthand if you got past the age of 35, it was remarkable. And so, I mean, I think one of the things that I've gotten to see being Miss Major's assistant and then co-authoring the book with her is how much it means to have like a, a mother or grandmother figure around because it is so rare. Then mm. what's the impact of those kind of continuities especially working in a context like prison support you know it's this incredibly violent environment potentially and I mean of course violent towards uh, the prisoners rather than violence you know generated from the prisoners want to be clear about that sure 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 um yeah although you know violence can come from all directions but but like you said yeah it's it's mainly coming from the institution itself and that is that is the root of it. When Major was imprisoned, and then with a lot of the people that we know who are either uh, in prison or recently out, uh, it is really about creating a family for yourself. Because not only, as Mackenzie mentioned, are a lot of your like blood family blood family relatives out of the picture, but you kind of have no other choice. Uh, and so the term chosen family, although it's cliche, I mean, I, I think it's really like a necessary and nourishing part of a lot of people's lives who we both know. There's also, you know, like the, the 
symbolic elders. There's a scene in the book that's at um, Brooklyn Liberation for Black Trans Lives. And the first time that happened, there was like 20,000 people showed up. It was astonishing. And Miss Major's name was invoked by one of the speakers and the whole crowd just went nuts, you know. So there's this sense of... And it was framed as our living legend, Miss Major. And that's a lot of pressure to put on somebody who's still <laughs> also a real person, right? But there's something important about having, you know, sort of recognisable figures that make the sort of symbolic community of, of transness as well. Yeah, I think that one of the things that Major says kind of for other people who are out there, not just on behalf of herself, is how important it is to celebrate people while they are hmm. alive, having seen people like uh, Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson not being appreciated for all that they were bringing to movement work. I mean, Sylvia ended up dying unhoused and Marsha's murder has still not been solved. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, it's it's so important to to celebrate people who who are still with us. And when we come to that celebration, I, I find it so I don't know striking that Stonewall has been I try to struggling for a word that's not memeified that gets a little bit towards what I mean here. But there's a a lot of people mud wrestling over who gets to coronate the real meaning of Stonewall. Right? And it's often taken place over the kind of real meaning and real kind of biographies of people like Sylvia Rivera and Marsh P. Johnson. And of course, Miss Major, but Miss Major just happens to be, thankfully, still around. And I'm kind of wondering uh, what that kind of debate looks like, what that search for meaning, uh, historical meaning looks like when this person can obviously still take part in the debate, like she's still out there, she's still working, she's still active, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she um, she never retired really from the work she's been doing since she left her parents' home in Chicago in the 60s. I think that one thing that she's done really well, though, is like she has a way to figure out like, okay, she needs to get laid. She needs to sleep. <laughs> she needs to like hold her kid, like all of these things that like allow her to continue to do the work without burning out is really important part of the book and something that a lot of people, I think, come to her and ask her, like, how, how does she do it? How does she still have the will to, to go out and do the, the speaking gigs and to go to these protests? And part of it is just she couldn't see it in any other way, I think. It's just about something that's, like, innately uh, she's driven to do. But she also says, you know, like, there's, like, Mackenzie said, there's like not a ton of us. And so it's kind of like somebody has to. Right. Somebody's got to be driving the bus here. <laughs> what, what I recall of what Miss Major has said about uh, Stonewall is the, the dominant memory being fear, you know, and that's, that's real. You know, like there are all of these sort of ridiculous nitpicky arguments about like who was there and who threw the first brick and all this kind of, it's really not helpful, you know, but to just think of like, to me, that's the truth of the moment is just fear, you know, like all of these queer and trans people, although who would have called themselves very different things at the time confronting the police, you know, it's, it's kind of a little kind of macabre and unseemly that, that, but it's sort of inevitable that, you know, history is always part of the struggle for meaning. Um, but, you know, there's, there's been a lot of co-opting of that story. Um, and I, I kind of think also, like, there's other stories too. It's kind of strange how that became the centre of the myth. There was also Compton's Cafeteria. Like, there's so many other stories of uh, when queer and trans people, however they might have called themselves at the time, uh, have resisted and to sort of, and often also then in less dramatic ways of how we have resisted. Uh, so, you know, like I, I kind of, we need to change the storytelling a little bit here as well. So tell me about those stories that you're drawn to, because 
this is a sort of act of collective autobiography and collective writing ourselves into history that we're talking about here. And part of the task of that is selection, right? Mackenzie? Yeah, there's so many different trans lives to kind of um, put into literature, to, to put into conversation. And there's differences, like, you know, there are many situations where trans world can be as segregated as every other world in here in the United States. And so we kind of need to deal with all of those differences. But I think the more, it, it, it doesn't negate the importance of organising. In fact, I think it strengthens it to think about how do we develop the cultural sphere of trans life. The art of trans people is often in forms that aren't recognised as, you know, sort of capital A art, how trans people perform themselves and style themselves and interact. Let's, you know, kind of open the space for the, and resource and pay for (laughs) the glory of the art that trans people make as well as a way of kind of creating just that little extra bit of fibre of ongoingness uh, for for trans lives. Because, you know, like most trans, trans people will tell you how important it was to find a model, you know, to find somebody who made their concept of themselves possible. It took me a long time to find that. So, I mean, let's sort of strengthen that and make that a little more available. And the fact that there's such an effort to shut that down indicates how important it is. Um wondering about what it's like for you Toshio kind of treading that tightrope between on the one hand you know sharing those possibilities of different futures sharing possibilities of different forms of life and and happiness but on the other hand not shying away from the fact of fear that we were just mentioning that because he was talking about how uh, Miss Major frames Stonewall and it is of course one of the major ways in which trans people can experience public life. You've written about the really tragic case of the killing of a young trans man named Banco Brown this year, murdered by security staff. And the extraordinary thing is that that is by no means an extraordinary story. Yeah. The book's project is to continue to to talk about the the violence and then also like the cultural change. Mackenzie mentioned that that does need to happen. And political change that needs to happen as well. And uh, Bingo Brown was a black, unhoused trans man who was killed at Walgreens. It's sort of like a pharmacy corner store here. And it was all over like whether or not he had stolen uh, about like $14 worth of candy and snacks and unfortunately in San Francisco the kind of police state has come to mean more than just the police I mean we have the sheriffs we have right now the highway patrol in San Francisco we have the university police there's these uh, they're called community ambassadors who are this other form of proto-police. There's like uh, the National Guard is actually in San Francisco to sort of sweep unhoused people at the moment. It's really out of control. It's like they're trying to use all these different forms of policing, including the security guards who, you know, one of them ended up killing Binko Brown. And there were all these protests really like righteous anger over his death and the city's answer unfortunately has so far been to fund more of these forms of policing. Mm. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that actually because often the, the trans narrative is presented as something that happens in a kind of private, intimate space. It's something that happens between yourself and your mirror or yourself and your wardrobe or yourself and an intimate partner. But so much of certainly like UK and US political life at the moment is dominated by paranoia and fear-mongering precisely over the existence of trans people in public space and how that's turbocharging all kinds of other patterns of, you know, policing and violence that we're already seeing. Uh, Toshio? 
Yeah, I mean, the just the idea of, of public space, it feels like, like I get a little uncomfortable because it feels like sort of claustrophobic at the moment mm-hmm. because in San Francisco, there has been so much privatization of public spaces. I mean, the land being sold off by the local school district into private hands and the shrinking of of parks and just the even parking spaces becoming sort of parklets, like the outdoor dining that was happening during quarantine has remained here. And so like these spaces that were ostensibly public have have been privatized just in the past few years. And I mean, talking about Banco Brown, I mean, that's like, a big part of probably why Banco is dead is lack of public spaces to to be in just these really uh, basic necessities that everyone should have access to that the state could uh, provide if enough of us, I think, sort of made the people who are in power right now realize like you need to provide this. Mm-hmm. There's there's a whole ramping up of this narrative around shoplifting. I don't know if it's happening in the UK, it's happening in the US. I'm not seeing any evidence there's any actual increase in shoplifting, but there's this narrative as if it has that then means that everything in every store is locked and there's more security in the store than actual people working to sell you stuff. So it's kind of bringing the model of policing into everyday retail that everybody needs to do, you know. And then, you know, there's this sort of a heightened sense of narratives around danger, which does connect to transness because we get classified as one of the kinds, but there's many other, you know, threads to the danger narrative such that, you know, if, if I just leave my apartment to take the subway, you know, to go grocery shopping or go to work, I will see multiple groups of police officers standing around with nothing to do, you know. Like, that's where the budget is in this city. So my, when my kids went back to school, they have to take their own pencils and paper towels because there's nothing wow. in, you know, in the public school at all. Um, but there's pl- endless, endless money for police and the extension of the model of police into, like, more and more spaces where it would have been thought that, you know, like, you run a retail operation, shoplifting's part of the cost of doing business of, you know, (laughs) it's like, that's actually how it works. But we now have this sense of, like, every single space has to have police. And, you know, that doesn't just impact trans people, uh, it impacts everybody who's folded into the, the narrative of who's a threat and high on that list is going to be people of colour, downhoused and so on. Mm. So, yeah, like there's one solution to every problem, which, of course, multiplies and feeds off the problem, and that's police. Absolutely. And when we talk about that, the nexus of danger and who gets read as a threat and, you know, treated as such, right, in, in, in many sort of violent and exclusionary ways, so from this linkage between transness, sex work, and non-white existence, that's a sort of vague framing there, but that is, is so fundamental to the way in which, you know, we experience like both like intimate life and life, you know, when we leave our houses. I was wondering what it was like kind of like writing through that, Mackenzie, because I know you, you uh, talk about in, in your book how sort of your experience like has been exceptional in many ways. Yeah, I'm a middle-class white person, so I'm not representative <laughs> of anything to do with, with trans experience. Like, you know, trans people happen across the whole population, you know, and it doesn't matter why. It really doesn't matter what makes us. It's just we exist, and we always did in one form or another. And, and it's sort of, I think, important to acknowledge the differences in trans experience first, you know, like we're not the same as part of the process of building solidarity and building movements that kind of have to be led by those who are most affected. So like acknowledging the leadership of trans women of colour, acknowledging the leadership of those who have been incarcerated or who do sex work or who struggle with housing, that sort of those are the sort of the central issues. And, you know, sort of anti-discrimination law is great, but, you know, a lot of trans people can't get jobs to start with mm. or have absolutely no access to 
you know, law as a frame for attempting to achieve justice. So just to sort of make sure these movements don't get hijacked by, you know, kind of middle-class agendas around what the key issues in LGBTQ plus politics, you know. I'm really taken with that framing of it doesn't matter why we're here because you talk uh, a lot about these notions of authenticity, right, and the kind of drive towards explaining why someone is is trans, like giving this kind of genealogical root of the quote-unquote issue in a way that can be very proximate to frameworks of diagnosis, even if it's not like out and out in a, in a medical sense. And I would love to hear more about your thoughts about, you know, this drive towards uh, authenticity and particularly this kind of born this way narratives and uh, how that figures into a broader framework of thinking about how trans people move through this idea of their existence as somehow deceptive or inauthentic. The thing about any politics for a minoritized population is you've only got tactics in and against a language that you didn't make. Mm -hmm. You know, like we didn't make this language about what queerness is or what transness is, but we sort of have to find tactics within it. And so, you know, if it's tactically useful to say, well, queer and trans people are born this way, then you use that language, you know, but it ought not to matter. Like, it ought not to matter. Like, yeah, like a lot of people have just absolutely no choice but to live their lives as queer or as trans or both. But like, do we sort of need some legitimating biological naturalistic language for that? Like, you know, like the the demand that you produce a narrative that justifies you is very unevenly distributed. You know, like, why are cis people cis? Can cis people explain to me, like, why they, like, Mm -hmm. you know, do you have a medical diagnosis that says you have to be a cis person? Like, no one ever asks those questions, right? It's just on those who are considered other to, you know, like, no existence should need to be justified. You know, you shouldn't need to justify your existence as anything. Like, we're human. Like, that's enough. That ought to be enough. But it's a struggle to get to that point. And that struggle is going to be a long one. When it comes to explaining, you know, why people are certain genders, explaining in, like, appropriate scare quotes there, it's often useful to take a look back at, you know, how when we talk about gender, we're always already talking about things like race and coloniality and vice versa. And, you know, you know, certainly by, you know, at least the mid 19th century, if effeminacy becomes, comes to be seen as this marker of a kind of degeneracy associated with like, quote unquote, non-Western, quote unquote, like uncivilized cultures. So I, I'm, I'm wondering how kind of, you know, attention to, to trans stories can kind of help us sort of give the light to how, you know, ordinary sort of conceptions of gender are already bitty and partial and arbitrary. Yeah, I mean, there's another, I think, really wonderful book that Verso has done by Jules Jill Peterson on how you know, trans misogyny is a kind of colonial project that sort of also then folded back into the the sort of metropolitan centres, you know, the sense that colonial regimes had particular kinds of labour that particular genders were supposed to do. And if you weren't one or the other, then that had to be suppressed. And one of the key examples of that is the fate of the Hydro in uh, northern India, where British control was weak and then attempting to a race out of existence, you know, something like a third gender that made no sense in the sort of colonial order of things, of, of how it wanted to manage a population to extract value from it. So I think it's useful to sort of take the larger view sometimes and sort of see what happened to trans people, you know, and, and we've existed in all sorts of different ways in different times and places, but the particular framing of us as a kind of pathological other um, is modern and is part of a kind of colonial project that was also a project of managing the sort of unruly working classes in the metropolitan centres as well. So, you know, there's sort of like that, that bourgeois fear of losing control of the mob is implicated in this as well. Toshi, I'd love to hear more from you in terms of your work very much ensconced in a major metropolitan area, right, and uh, thinking about how ordinary working people get policed and what 
those forms of both kind of public discipline and uh, labour discipline look like when you sort of happen to be queer and uh, what that tells us about the purposes of these forms of discipline more generally. Yeah, I mean, the first thing that I think about is uh, something that we spoke about earlier, which is just housing and the centrality of housing to making sure that people are safe. And I mean, uh, we could debate about like that term safety. So I think that so many queer and trans people end up unhoused. I mean, in, in San Francisco, it's by the city's last count, um, about 40% of, of people who are unhoused in San Francisco identify as, as queer trans. And, and many of those people are, um, they grew up in San Francisco. Like the, the vast majority of people who are unhoused in San Francisco are from San Francisco and were housed in San Francisco before they became unhoused. And so to have such a huge amount of people who are queer and trans kinds of, uh, it shows like what um, kind of trajectory that the state has in store for you. Mm-hmm. Like the most, um, uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it hasn't created enough effective paths out of that reality. And that just has to change. I'm just speculating on what would happen if we started to think of gentrification as also like a straightening. Mm. Like we know it's a whitening, but is it also a straightening that is happy to embrace forms of queer life that follow kind of a bourgeois pattern of existence? And are we sort of squeezing out of, I mean, we are, like how are we squeezing out certain modes of life of the city? In San Francisco is probably even way more acute than New York, given the size of it. You know, New York's a bigger city that's also had money dumped into it, but not quite the same tidal wave. But you you see this here as well. Yeah, in San Francisco, I mean, the Castro district, which is famously like the the gay neighborhood in San Francisco, it has become a lot straighter. And I think, you know, you'll walk through there and run the risk of, getting run over by a stroller these days versus, you know, in the in the seventies, it was more, it was, um, you know, less, less so. How do I say this? I think in San Francisco, we do have these two different neighborhoods that have traditionally been the queer ones. Like there's the, the Polk area, lower Polk, and the Castro, the Castro was traditionally the area where the like middle middle class gays, and then the lower Polk was more working class gays. And so the gentrification projects that happened in both areas, though, like in lower Polk, because people had less legal claim on the property there it was so quick to gentrify and as a result of developers coming in and building largely what are these kind of globalized condo buildings and in the castro the property setup is a a little bit different a lot more like single family homes, there's some public housing that would be tough to just get rid of very quickly. And so it's been a longer term gentrification project. But yeah, I mean, I I do think that is as soon as the strollers come through, you you can rest assured that uh, the property values will be going up and the rents will be going up as well. That was the fate of Chelsea in, in New York City and the piers are long gone. There's there's a sort of reconvening of queer and trans life in northern Brooklyn, um, but it too is then also a gentrifying engine, you know, because then it's often, you know, white queers with jobs, you know, kind of moving in and, and we'll get this little bubble of uh, culture. But after the gentrification comes like the aristification, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a level after that. Uh, so there's there's kind of like a chain effect where, you know, like you you had 
artists and then you've got web developers and then you've got lawyers and then you've got bankers, you know, like one wave replaces the other in kind of a cycle. Right. I remember that moment when like Williamsburg became more expensive than Manhattan and (laughs) the same thing sort of happened here. Like for a moment, it was more expensive to live in Oakland than it was in San Francisco in the same way. Yeah, I can't remember if it was Kent or Wythe, but there was a stroll there, you know, and like that is that is long gone, you know. <laughs> but, the, you know, these things always will always find a kind of a niche somewhere, but they get sort of pushed further and further to the periphery of the city. What might that kind of queer placemaking, if you like, you know, look like or demand from us if it's not going to be uh, sort of strollers as the harbinger and front line of gentrification. I'm, I'm really taken with this idea of feminism, I believe is what you call it, uh, Mackenzie, because I'm always radically turned off by the idea of communism or utopia in general as a sort of retreat to a kind of austere, hetero-masculinist claim of, you know, what we really are and what we should really be, right? Like, I'm like, can't I paint my nails under communism? Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, there's there's sort of like this, you know, like man with hammer model of, of sort of labour and a lot of um, labour movement discourse. And I'm from the labour movement, so I'm sort of familiar with, with all of that, you know. And, and up in the valley, you know, behind where I grew up was sort of mining territory and the miners' union was very strong, but part of its strength was the so-called women's auxiliary, you know, like it's the women really ran it on on some level to keep a community going through a strike and all that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And yeah, what if we sort of centred, going even further, like centred sort of like femme experiences as a sort of um, model for what you would want out of Every, everyday life were oppression <laughs> to end. You know what? What? What would fems want out of the, out of the world? Um, and yeah, like what would what would those values be? So yeah, there's sort of like a speculative thing about what if we thought about feminism instead? You know, like what 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 world what world do we want? What do the girls want out of out of the good life? Uh, so yeah, there's there's like a riff about about that in love and money, sex and death. You know, but it's sort of like focusing on that. You know, we want our roses now model of black and brown trans life. You know, like let's what what does it mean to sort of celebrate, you know, who trans of color people are now, what they create, what their art is, what the models of community are, how people such as myself are on the periphery of that, and what does it mean to um, place oneself in a peripheral position rather than a central one in relation to social, political and cultural movements. Like those are all sort of questions I wanted to work through. And I'm curious uh, to learn more about, I guess, uh, Miss Major's articulation of girlhood and that's spelled G-U-R-L as a kind of a more expansive, inclusive label of what like girlhood could mean. Right? And it's, it's a very kind of denigrated state of being in many ways, but sort of reframed as this sort of a uh, massive wellspring of potential massive wellspring of uh, creativity and uh, possibility and maybe that's the thing that's you know terrifying about it perhaps does you? yeah I mean I think clearly you've read the book because <laughs> I think you got it I mean I think it is just um, her more expansive definition of growing up as somebody who is trans in the world and for a lot of people maybe that doesn't start until you're in your 30s or later, and it might also contain things like the getting older or growing into your transness as somebody who is coming from a position of power. And that's really what she wants to sort of imbue in younger people. Tell us more about that position of power, what that might mean, that self-determination. Yeah, I I think there is a sort of like innate radical nature to people who are just so comfortable in who they are that some of these like the external forces that would sort of try to blot out some of uh, Major's girls, I think, stand no chance, if that makes sense. It makes sense, and it, uh, you know, hopefully a 
vector of future delight as well. There's there's trans people and and not only but often trans women who have no choice but to survive in the world by being absolutely amazingly fabulous. <laughs> uh, just just whatever nonsense gender is, they're just going to do it ten times better than everybody else. And on the other hand, it's kind of exhausting, and you know, like you wouldn't wish that everybody had to do that, but often that's survival is you're just going to be so good at this that you're kind of bulletproof until you're not, you know? And you just see that a lot. And I really honour that side of our culture. You know, it's important and it gives all of us strength, you know? But it can be hard for people who have to perform that role to maintain that strength for themselves. And I, I think there's there's sort of work to do in, in community to make. And, and I've called that feminism, call it what you want, you know? There's, there's work to do to build that and, and generalise that, sometimes to defend it and to honour it. Yeah, because if you are in that position, you have to always be on. Yeah. And one of the things that Major says, and it's included as the title of one of the chapters in the book, is like passing was never the goal. And I, I would guess that at moments she had ideas about like, oh, how how nice would it be to just pass and like not have to worry about someone, you know, saying something about my appearance and my gender or actually coming up and attacking me as a result of it. But she, she does have this like ability to kind of like, the only reason that she's alive today is because she very much doesn't give a shit (laughs) (laughs) about how, um, externally, you know, people out in the world view her and her gender. Yeah, it's really striking, isn't it? Because there's the there's the slogan that's, you know, it's very popular. Understandably, I love it. I think I had a fridge magnet of it for about, you know, half a decade that's, you know, not gay as in happy, but queer as in fuck you, which I love. But on one hand, the queer as in fuck you sounds completely exhausting and is completely exhausting uh, a lot of the time. And uh, that's why I'm very um, kind of absorbed by, in your book, Mackenzie, the discussion of the possibilities of, you know, tenderness and vulnerability and love, really, and, you know, what it would take to to build the possibility, not just of kind of survival, but of kind of messing up and vulnerability and building those kind of tender connections. Yeah, as I mentioned, we only have tactics, you know, and, and those sort of change depending on the situation because the the sort of strategy of control and management of, of gender is sort of imposed on us from, from outside. And, you know, the double bind of, you know, like the super high femme doll approach to trans femininity is also like the media love it, you know, mm-hmm. like it sort of then becomes and then that that's everybody's expectation and it's like we can't all do that, you know, like not all of yeah. us are that fabulous. So yeah, sometimes you just <laughs> got to take out the bins, you know. Yeah, some of us are lucky to manage eyeliner in the morning, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that's it, you know, like our, our strength lie elsewhere, you know, and, and it's sort of uh, how, how do we have all of our ways of being in community with each other and equally valid? you know, kind of then becomes the the challenge a little bit, you know, because like as soon as you've got a way of being trans in the world, you know, it's then also a thing that, you know, like the culture industries and the NGOs and all that want to extract from and, and you know, they've all got their own agenda for what they want to do with that. So, yeah, it's sort of like constantly playing whack-a-mole with all of these ways of um, being appropriated and exploited. It's like the other side of, of transness. And where, you know, the visibility of it's really been a two-edged sword and, you know, like the trans women of colour was saying right all the way through, you know, like visibility is not necessarily good for us at all. People who didn't realise they were supposed to hate us now know that they're supposed to hate us and before they didn't pay attention, you know. So while it's great that transness is open in the sense that then we can find each other, uh, it also means other people find us and the more vulnerable trans people and community feel the the force of that so much more. So that's sort of the double bind that we're in at the moment. Mm. And, and a lot of this media modelling, it takes place through the modality of, on the one hand, who is fuckable and on the other hand, who is lovable, which are often 
two very different things and people are forced to navigate them in two very, very different ways. Yeah, and, and you know, like, mad respect for trans women in the United States who became the sort of public face of it, but who were never allowed to put a foot out of line, you know, like, always had to be perfectly made up and on their best behaviour and all that. And uh, no one can do that. You know, like you shouldn't have to be a perfect noble subject at all times to deserve to live, you know, because that's where we are, you know. Like so hypothetically, if somebody stole $14 worth of snacks from a, a, a Walgreens, does that mean they deserve to die? You know, well, that's sort of the space that we've come to at the moment. And then whose lives are considered that, you know, disposable? You know, like some rich white dude goes in and steals $14 worth of snacks, you know, is going to get a slap on the wrist and a warning from the judge and no charges filed or whatever, you know. So, yeah, the, <laughs> the what more can I say, you know? Toshia, tell me more about that. Um, you mentioned the effect of age and of um, ageing on, you know, how trans community care and queer community care manifests itself because you know often we don't have elders and uh, certainly we don't have kind of institutions whereby you know elders are like often ensconced in like loving family scenarios where they can get their needs taken care of and that kind of thing and of course obviously the scripts of gender change as we age as well and it's, it's sometimes kind of arguably harder to slot yourself into a form of, you know, correct gendering if you are above, you know, a certain age because beauty and desirability and femininity are so bound up together. Yeah, I mean, there are a few relationships that I have in my life where it's like, um, you know, we need to be checking in with people on a regular basis because queer and trans Elders are much more likely to be isolated and alone and not have like the typical blood family to take care of them as they get older. And so it does fall on the rest of us who care about them to make sure that they're okay. Uh, There are a few organizations out there that tend to the needs of of older queer and trans people. There's Sage in New York and there is a um a senior home that is mainly queer and trans people here in San Francisco, but those are few and far between. Yeah, ageism is real and queer people can be ageist like everybody else of, you know, uh that sense of, oh you're supposed to have, you know, past your last fuckable day, you're supposed to disappear from from uh, queer world. Like, that's a sort of sentiment. And not universally, but, like, that's the thing that, that you find out there. Yeah, I mean, Major, one of the actually, like, in, you know, traveling around with her, one of the seemingly most revolutionary things that she will impart <laughs> upon audiences is that she still has sex um, and <laughs> just to let you know yeah she'll often give out her number i love um, that, I love that. Just, <laughs> she's signing the books oh my god i love that or her room number uh and you know people are sometimes shocked but i think it's actually really important that is some important work that she's she's been doing like whether or not people in the audience like it I should say and especially because like Mackenzie I think was gesturing at it's queer trans people in public are supposed to be not talking about sex even if ostensibly like that's yeah I mean it's just a huge part of who we all are, and yet it is, it strangely has become like a no go subject in a lot of spaces, I think, where queer and trans people are public facing. Yeah, for the, for the record, I'm 62 and I still fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> I chose like pictures for the cover where I look hot because it's like, well, I am, you know, on a good day. <laughs> yeah. No, the pictures are amazing. Like, I know this is an audio medium, but like, let me reassure everyone. I'm already getting like, you know, kind of 
turf nonsense because there's also the assumption that transsexuality is somehow perverted and weird and dangerous, you know, and it's like we have all the sexualities that other people have, you know, it's just variations on on those same flavours, but not, you know, especially unusual in, in that regard, you know, and as to how we actually have sex, if you can't imagine it, then you don't need to think about it or know about it, you know, like if it's outside your range, just leave it alone, <laughs> honey, it's, you know. It ain't no thing. But the the sort of pathologizing of the sexuality of trans people is kind of a problem, you know. It's why people think, you know, uh, it would be dangerous to be in a public restroom with me. It's just, I go in there to pee like everybody else and check my makeup, you know. It's like it's really not anything special, you know. So I, I think that um, is a particularly dangerous little corner of discourse and it's hard to navigate that to one at the same time say yeah there's there's nothing dangerous or necessarily scary about transsexuality it's, it's just a thing like with regular humans you know but we have it you know and let's celebrate it because there was a very desexualized model of the official trans narrative for a long time yeah because you couldn't it was a, it was a double bind you couldn't get care you know if you went to the medical establishment you know they're going to ask you questions that you know oh you want to transition well what's your sexuality and it would be a, a double bind trick question right if i have as a trans woman say i'm interested in sex with women they're not going to make me a lesbian like doctors were not going to sign up to do that on the other hand, if I say I have sex with men, it's like, oh, well, I would become a heterosexual woman, but they're not interested in dealing with me as a gay man. So you're like the only safe recourse for trans people was to deny that they had a sexuality at all before transition, you know, and then it would be a quote unquote normal one, you know. So we're still living in the sort of overhang of that, you know, like policing of the very possibility of our gender being tied to respectable models of sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the whole bathroom situation, it does go back to like, I mean, it, it says something about society, but it also says something about like the person whose mind immediately goes to, to, to sex in the bathroom, that that's the first thing that comes to mind. I think it's kind of strange to me. Yeah. There's some deeply weird, like, vein of repression that that all of this seems connected to you know and it's like damn it's it, when you sort of look at it too hard this is making like all my trans friends seem incredibly normal because well, <laughs> we don't have these weird obsessive <laughs> hang-ups about like other people you know right right and it's, it seems like this strange morbid symptom of you know trying to find some way of defending like a regularized heteronormative sex from the from the ingress of like other forms of gender expression it's like okay you can do the strange gender stuff over there but like sex is something that's sort of separate and you know biologically regulated and that kind of thing but of course you know gender and sex are inevitably bound up together it's like if sex is some some way in which we uh you know understand and experience our most intimate selves why shouldn't that be a way in which we experience gender as well like why should we have to carve that out from other parts of our experience i mean it, it was sort of important to start thinking sex and sexuality first of all to separate them so that we can then put them back together again right absolutely uh because there was, there was sort of a long history of the confusion of transness and gayness by the medical establishment. I don't think we were ever that confused about it. <laughs> uh, but there's this, this sense that a gay person is sort of an invert and all this kind of stuff. So it was, it was important to sort of separate it out. But then it's like, oh, all right, can we sort of see how genders express themselves through sexuality and, and, and vice versa? You know, these things are related is kind of an important step to get to. You know, like people don't transition to avoid the stigma of being gay you know like that's just not how it works people transition because they're trans you know because that's that's the path to a livable life and that can correspond to a very wide range of sexualities most of them pretty dull you know like most trans people have dull regular sexualities like other people <laughs> most people have boring sex and that includes right. <laughs> that includes most everyone the, most of the time and that's okay <laughs> and that's fine <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, wondering, I guess, how we understand the future of this of you know trans self narration, trans storytelling. When visibility can, as we've uh, mentioned, be a bit of a trap sometimes. Toshia. Yeah, I mean, I am speaking to you from within 
what San Francisco uh, officially has designated as the transgender district. And it is this sort of neoliberal creation. Although I have read um, Capital is Dead, so I know that we're, like, is, <laughs> we're in this different um, <laughs> moment. But just to use that as shorthand, sure. so the state has designated this area as the trans district. And yet that designation was created out of a collaboration between developers and the city and then like one or two trans nonprofits in the city that were selected because the city and the developers kind of knew that they could have somebody who they could trot out who was trans and assuage the uh, fears of the people in the city that um, this gentrification that's happening here is actually okay. And it's mm. sponsored by trans, uh, <laughs> sort of. And it, you know, it's been deplorable for most trans people who live in the area because it's made it less affordable. And again, going back to these like very basic things like housing, the uh, number one cost in most of our lives, you know, these are, these are just like basic, basic things that everyone should have access to. And yeah, it's important that we are watching out for these instruments of, you know, people like developers who are, are interested in using the community for their own profit. Mackenzie, final thoughts? Some of my favourite moments in the book is Miss Major just refusing to be co-opted by these things, sort of just refusing to show up or shows up for a pride parade and just how awful it is, you know, of like how <laughs> those things become something really just completely different, you know. Yeah. Uh, and the, and the, the sort of like anger and humour at the same time around that is sort of one of the delights of reading it, you know, like, yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> you know, in, in, in New York there, there had to be a whole separate pride parade called Reclaim Pride, you know. And then I just imagine in 10 years we'll have to have a reclaim, reclaim pride, you know, there's, there's, sort, of, <laughs> there's sort of like a cycle with these things. But sure. Like maybe that's just the trajectory of these things and, and then you're always having to, you know, like start things in a certain space but they become institutionalised and you do it again, you know, and you sort of build a different thing somewhere. Yeah, I, my, my own work in, in trans communities just around culture and trying to, create just a tiny little bit more. Trans culture really exists in this town. It is so, you know, vibrant and fascinating and diverse. And all I'm doing is just creating a little bit of fibre to give it ongoingness, to get people paid, to get things visible to the right people, you know, to can we see each other is more interesting to me than, you know, broadcasting to the world. So that's that's sort of like just an ongoing, you know, politics of culture for me is, you know, like how to keep working away at that so that you know we're here for good we're here for good and uh sadly the podcast is the thing that isn't here for good <laughs> because devastatingly that is all we have time for it has been such a huge pleasure talking to you both thank you so much for coming on and chatting to us Tosho Mackenzie so lovely to have you on Thank you for listening. That was our episode where we were joined by Mackenzie Walk and Toshio Marinek to talk about trans resistance, gentrification and girlhood. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do consider giving us a rating or a review. It really helps us out and it helps more people find us through the loving graces of the algorithm. Next week, we'll be talking about care work, disability activism and the kindness of strangers with Larie Erickson and Lynn Segal. You've been listening to the Verso podcast from Verso Books. This episode was hosted by Eleanor Penny and produced by Planet B Productions. For more discussions with radical thinkers, head over to versobooks.com.